This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome to another episode of Money and Markets. I'm Dan Coatesworth and with me today is Danny Hewson. Hi, Dan. It's been a short week for UK markets, but that hasn't limited the action because most of it's come from across the pond with concerns about a shortage of microchips further impacting tech stocks and auto manufacturers. There's also been some comment about potential tax changes and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been talking about interest rate rises, which prompted a further sell-off on Wall Street. And we'll dig into that a bit later. I'll also be assessing how increasing ad sales are boosting some big names, including ITV and Facebook. Tom Selby's with us as well. Hi, Tom. What's in Pensions Corner this week? Hi, Danny. Um, so no reader question this week, although we will be back with reader questions in subsequent episodes. I'm going to be talking about some FCA proposals aimed at nudging more people to access pension-wise before they take money from their retirement pot. We're also getting the lowdown on bank accounts with Andy Webb, the founder and editor of Clever Cash. He's been looking at why a number of switching offers are disappearing and also how to combat the fraudsters. And Jenny Owen's going to be with us later on the show looking at the trainer resale business. Now, it surprises me that used shoes are worth big money. It surprises me too. My used shoes certainly wouldn't be worth any money. (laughs) (laughs) We've got plenty to get through. Um, Seriously, though, I do feel I need another bank holiday to recover from this week. But momentum is good. And, Dan, we're starting with some serious momentum in the demand for advertising as companies look to grab onto reopening opportunities. Yeah, there's been a definite common theme across several big stocks in the last couple of weeks. So ITV, Facebook, uh, Google's owner Alphabet and WPP are all been talking about a pickup in demand for advertising. And for them, it's great news. It means their earnings are going to improve. And, you know, Sir Martin Sorrell used to be the boss at WPP. Now he's at a new business called S4 Capital. And That business has raised profit targets after a strong first quarter for digital advertising as well. And I really think this trend shouldn't come as a surprise as economic recovery means we are seeing companies increase confidence about wanting to promote their goods. Now, we've also got the fact that lots of consumers are sitting on plenty of cash, so they're able to spend. I just think that companies will be fighting for a share of that wallet and they'll want their products to stand out. When it comes to online advertising, that's increasingly important, which is why Google's been doing so well, because online advertising is measurable. Consumers have been heavily reliant on digital and social commerce for the last year, and smart businesses will be the ones investing to ensure that they've got the data to track any behavioral shifts and ultimately make sure that they're selling what buyers want and are buying. I have to say, I still get slightly edgy when I start to see adverts coming at me for things that I've been looking at online. (laughs) But uh, we should get used to it, shouldn't we? Because, of course, it's directing us to what we want. Um, All of this momentum that you were just talking about, it does raise concerns about overheating in the economy. And I know, Dan, that you've been looking into some comments you were saying from Janet Yellen, and it really stirred up already jittery investors in the US. But before we get on to that, let's bring in Tom Selby, because there's also been quite a lot going on in terms of one of the biggest investments that most people will have, and that is their pension. Let's start, Tom, with moves by the FCA to get more people accessing guidance. 
Yes, so the a bit of background to this. So when the pension freedoms were launched in 2015, so those were reforms that allow people to access their pension in a way that suits their needs and to spend it how they, how they choose. Alongside that, a guidance service, a free impartial guidance service called PensionWise was created. Now that's designed to support people in making what can quite often be quite complex decisions with their retirement pots. So anyone over the age of 50 is able to access one of these PensionWise guidance sessions. There's a website which is really useful. I'd suggest anyone listening to this go and check that out. But you can also have face-to-face appointments with PensionWise and the government and the regulators want as many people as possible to take these guidance sessions so they're armed and tooled up with all the information they need to make decent retirement decisions. However, the government and the FCA are concerned that not enough people are taking up these face-to-face guidance sessions. So in 2019-20, around 130,000 appointments were booked with PensionWise, which sounds like quite a big number, but other surveys have suggested that only one in 10 people accessing their, their pension are choosing to take guidance in this way. Clearly, some people will be taking regulated financial advice, but it suggests that there may be a gap in the number of people between the number of people accessing their pension and the number of people getting good impartial information on what to do with their retirement pot. Obviously, quite complex, difficult decisions to be made there in terms of, for example, different types of annuities if you're going down that route, costs and charges, how to draw down safely and the different investments that you want to choose. So lots and lots of things to think about, which mean that getting guidance or ideally getting financial advice is a good thing to do and something the government wants people to do. So these new proposals from the FCA, and they're not set in stone yet, they're just proposals at the moment, would require pension providers to offer to book appointments with PensionWise on behalf of customers who say they want an appointment. Now, we'll have to see how this all comes out in the wash and there'll be providers and other interested parties responding to this consultation. Um, I think most people are agreed and unified in the in the fact that taking more people taking guidance and more people getting financial advice is a good thing. We'd rather see people getting that guidance throughout their lives rather than just at the point that they're taking their pension. I think there's an issue potentially in the fact that people might be more susceptible to a nudge towards guidance at different stages in their retirement saving journey and not the point they've made a decision and they want to access their pension and there'll there'll also be some stuff to work through in terms of whether or not this extra nudge towards guidance is going to be linked to whether or not people can access their money so the pension freedoms introduced in 2015 allow people to access the money how and when they want to from age 55 as i mentioned but one of the one of the proposals for example that the fca is looking at here is whether whether people who say they don't want guidance have a cooling off period having made that decision before they can access their pension pot. Now, if that were to come in, that would be a change to the way that people can take their benefits from their pension and would potentially mean that they have to wait a little bit longer to access their money. So as I say, these are early stage proposals, something we'll keep people updated on as they develop, but one, one to keep an eye on in the coming weeks and months. Okay, so another huge change potentially around the corner. Government plans to alter the age that savers can first access their pensions from 55 Mm. to 57. Now, 
That sounds simple enough until you read the small print. Isn't that right, Tom? <laughs> yeah, you've had me on this podcast enough times to know that simple <laughs> pensions changes aren't always quite as simple as you would hope they would be. Um, so, yeah, as you, as you say, the government and the Treasury in particular consulting on increasing the earliest point people can access their retirement pot, what's called the normal minimum pension age, from 55 to 57 in 2028. So this is a few years down the line, not something that's going to come in immediately. Um, it's a change that's been fairly long planned and is designed to reflect rising life expectancy. So what the Treasury wants to do is keep the minimum point that you can access your retirement pot in line with the state pension age. So 10 years away from the state pension age. So in 2028, the state pension age is due to go up to 67. And so it wants to increase the normal minimum pension age to 57 to keep that 10 year gap. So sounds simple in theory, but the way the government's proposed doing it risks creating a bit of a retirement lottery based on how your pension scheme rules are written. Now, I suspect most people listening to this won't have read in detail their pension scheme rules and certainly won't have thought about how it might impact the first point at which they can access their retirement pot. But the problem here potentially, and again, just like just like with the previous uh, pension-wise nudge proposals, these are just in consultation at the moment, so are sub sub uh, subject to change. But the problem centers on proposals to allow people with an unqualified right to access their pension from age 55 on the 11th of February 2021. So that was when this consultation was proposed to retain that unqualified right, provided they don't transfer to a different pension scheme. So what you would have here is some schemes, because their rules were written in a certain way, which are determined to give you an unqualified right to your pension at age 55, being able to retain that right and the members of their schemes being able to retain that right provided they don't transfer to a different scheme whereas other people in different schemes whose rules were randomly written in a different way would have what's known as a qualified right to their pension and they would have to move to age 57 for the earliest point that they can access their pension now that sounds like a bit of an, a mess because frankly it is a bit of a mess um, it's one of the few things that the vast majority i think of the pensions industry and people who observe the pensions industry are in agreement on shouldn't go ahead as is planned. I think most people want to see something a lot simpler than that. It's clearly not wouldn't be an ideal scenario if one person in pension scheme A has a, has a normal minimum pension age of 55 and another person in pension scheme B has a, a pension age of 57 when in all other ways those schemes are the same. So we'll, we'll wait to see what the Treasury comes out with in terms of its final proposals, but we're hoping that there'll be something slightly simpler and more sensible than, than what we've got on the table at the moment. There's nothing quite like pension small print on. There really is. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and pensions, they've really taken on increasing significance to lots of older workers uh, because the state of the economy. And as we come out of lockdowns, the Office for National Statistics has just put out some new figures and they found the quarter of those still on furlough are over 50 and a significant number of those workers believe they'll lose their job when the furlough scheme ends. Mm. Now, this, of course, could mean that many of those that are over 55 might start thinking about accessing their pot earlier than they might have liked to do, particularly if they then get back into employment and want to pay into their pension again. That, that's got issues. 
Yes, yeah. So a really interesting piece of research that you flagged up from the, the Office of National, National Statistics. Um, I think most of the, the focus on the, the, the economic and uh, in particular the employment impact of coronavirus and the lockdown has been on, on younger people. And that's understandable given it's younger people who've been hit the hardest by the, the certainly the economic fallout of the, the pandemic. But those aged 50 and over are also among those who've been fairly significantly affected in a negative way. So if you look at the data, you can see the kind of jobs where employment insecurity has been worst, um, particularly among the over 50s. You're looking at things like motor vehicle repair, health and social work, construction, education. These are, are sectors which employ lots of people in their over 50s and sectors which have been really seriously hit by the lockdown. There's also lots of over 50s who are self-employed, again, and part of the economy that's really been ravaged by the coronavirus pandemic. Um, many people who are faced with this kind of income uncertainty, um, who are over the age of 55 and so can access their pension, might be tempted to go down that route in order to make ends meet. And that's entirely understandable. And that is your right if you want to do that. Um, anyone going down that route, I'd say, two things that you need to really think about. Firstly, your pension's meant to provide you with an income that's going to last for your entire retirement. Now, it's there to be accessed if you need to access it in emergency over age 55, but you need to think about the consequences of that decision and how you're going to live for the rest of your retirement if you take out a big chunk of cash today. And the second thing that people need to think about is if you take taxable income from your pension after age 55, then the amount that you can save each year is reduced substantially by what's known as the money purchase annual allowance, something we've talked about on this podcast before. So that reduces the amount that you can save each year in a pension from £40,000 down to just £4,000. So a significant constraint on how much you can put into your retirement pot each year. Um, a couple of things that you can do if you don't want to trigger that money purchase annual allowance, but you do want to take money out of your pension. So you could just take some your tax-free cash from your pension. So if you just take the tax-free cash, then you retain uh, a £40,000 annual allowance. It's only where you take taxable income that the MPAA is triggered. You could, you could also look into small pots withdrawal rules. So where you have a, a pension pot that's worth £10,000 or less, it's possible to withdraw the entire pension pot as long as you extinguish the entire pot. And even though some taxable income will come with that, you won't trigger the money purchase annual allowance. Um, if you're in uh, a personal pension or a SIP, then there's a limit to three times that you can do that in your working life. But those are just a couple of ways where if people need to take some income from their pension, they can do it without triggering, triggering that money purchase annual allowance and really restricting what they can do and what they can save in the future. Thanks, Dom. So, Danny, as you were saying earlier, it's been a bit bumpy few days for the markets with big tech and car manufacturers among the biggest losers because of the ongoing shortage of semiconductors. Yeah, not enough chips. It's been really weighing markets down because if you think about lockdown, when we're all looking to kit out our home offices or maybe if you've got kids at home, they're looking to do online schooling or, you know, you just want the latest tech because you want to stream movies because you can't do anything else. Well, that led to an increase in demand for microchips. Sales last year rose by 5%. Now, this, of course, came at a time when those chip manufacturers were themselves impacted by 
COVID shutdowns. And it can take up to six months to manufacture some of these more advanced chips. So it just demonstrates how long the supply chain shortfall can take to resolve. And we're also expecting to see sales growth of 8% this year. So we're at a point now where we have a shortage of chips. And we've been talking about it for a number of weeks. But yesterday, a warning came from the German chip maker Infineon. Now, it is ramping up its supply, but estimates that the current situation result in 2.5 million less cars being produced in the first half of 2021 than had been intended. So markets, as you would imagine, reacted quite quickly. And you saw, as you said, um, auto manufacturers and tech stocks falling. Now, Ford had already flagged this up uh, in its results last week. Uh, It put a $2.5 billion price tag on the anticipated hit it's expecting next quarter because of production shutdowns. Apple also is gained ground today, as has Ford, but has seen big falls in recent weeks because during its results, it was saying that between three and four billion dollars would come off its bottom line. And I was astounded when I looked into this because Goldman Sachs did a report into the industries that relied on these uh, semiconductors and said that there were 169 separate industries that relied on these chips. Everything from the obvious, so car makers, computer makers, phone makers, but all the way to the machines that manufacture toilet paper. Can you believe it? So toilet paper could be affected by the chip shortage. But what Goldman Sachs also said, which will be troubling investors, is that global GDP could be suppressed by as much as half a percent. And prices, we've been talking a lot about prices, haven't we? Because we are concerned with inflation. Well, prices could go up by up to 3% on affected goods. So not only will you find that you're waiting longer for your mobile phone or your PS5 or your Ford pickup truck, but when you finally get your hands on it, you might end up paying more. Now, the scale of it is such that the White House has taken an interest in this. A few weeks ago, they called in chip makers and users to talk about boosting US supply, because at the moment, about 70% of all the chips that are used in the world come from Asia. So off the back of these comments by the German chip maker yesterday, the heat map on the NASDAQ had this huge splodge of red and it prompted a number of comments on social media of people saying, you know, shut the index. But that wasn't the end of the pain because crashing into the party came Janet Yellen and her comments about the potential need to raise interest rates to cool an overheating economy. It certainly sent some heat through those Wall Street maps, Dan. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of reasons for um, investors to get a bit worried um, about stocks. You, you, you keep, just as you're thinking that everything's going well for the for the markets, uh, we have a sort of a, a nervous day. And we definitely had that on the 4th of May with the Nasdaq US tech index down nearly 2%. Um, you know, like you say, but apart from interest rates and taxes and other stuff, you know, inflation is definitely at the forefront of investors' minds at the moment. And 
Uh, I just think that, that there are problems across supply chains and it's not just restricted to semiconductors. It's lots of products. Um, and I think that you're now going to get investors looking for companies that can pass on these higher costs to the customer because they're the ones who are going to be able to protect their profit margins. You know, not, not everyone is going to be able to do that because some businesses can't risk raising prices for fear that customers won't actually pay extra for their products. So this is all down to something called pricing power. So this is the ability to push up prices without negatively impacting demand. And sectors that have got pricing power would include insurance, mining, actually in semiconductors as well, we've just been talking about um, telecoms and freight and shipping. Uh, so I, I think you know perhaps some of the stocks that you want to be looking at that have got high pricing power include Infineon, again, as we were talking about before. So you know its customers are desperate for its products. So Infineon is in a very strong position to just say, well, pay me more for what I've got. Um, there's also the, the luxury goods company, LVMH, um, Vodafone, and even boring old, uh, you know, something like Zurich Insurance and RWE, stocks that aren't very exciting to a lot of investors. But this pricing power is um, something which stands them aside from lots of other companies at the moment. You know, we've just seen Warren Buffett, one of the world's most famous investors, um, giving a presentation at his company, Berkshire Hathaway's annual shareholder meeting. And, you know, Berkshire Hathaway owns things like house builders and energy companies and and essentially warren buffett was saying you know people are raising prices to us we're raising prices and it's all being accepted because people have got money in their pocket at the moment and they will pay the higher prices which is slightly unusual situation so i think perhaps for investors to think about is that at some point you're going to enter a period of slowing growth, but still have potentially have rising inflation. So that could cause a weaker market performance and actually make people rotate from cyclical stocks, which is, are in favor at the moment, back to defensive ones. So uh, defensive companies meaning among them, ones that can have this power to push up prices. So names like Unilever and Rent-A-Kill that have been out of fashion at the moment, they could suddenly start to attract investors' interest once again. Yes, yeah, central banks will certainly be paying close attention to uh, any rising prices. But we're going to move now from central banks to the banking sector. And the last couple of weeks have seen some pretty decent results from some of the biggest names, with most deciding to write back provision for bad debt as vaccine rollouts fuel recovery hopes. The Barclays boss, Jess Staley, is predicting the UK is about to party like it's 1948. But lockdown's also brought quite a lot of changes to the way that we live and the way that we bank. So what do we get for putting our money with our bank? And with the number of people switching accounts falling in the first three months of this year, why have some banks stopped offering cash incentives to switch? Well, I've been talking to Andy Webb, the founder and editor of Clever Cash and host of a twice weekly podcast called Cash Chats. So we're joined by Andy Webb, the founder and editor of Be Clever With Your Cash. Now, Andy also hosts um, bi-weekly podcast as well called Cash Chats. When can we get that, Andy? So that's twice a week, so on a Tuesday and a Friday. And if people are looking for it, whereabouts can they find it? I mean, just search in your podcasting app, just search for Cash Chats and it should pop up. Uh, again, it's on all those different devices. Now, there's so many ways you can listen to things, aren't there? It's you know, Spotify, Apple, 
uh, Google, all those different places. Um, yeah, so please do check it out. And I hope you enjoy. So many ways that you can listen to things and so many ways that you can bank. So as I was saying, you know, we've had... Um, we've heard from UK banks over the last couple of weeks, all are talking about a much better outlook going forward. But I thought just in terms of the customer, the way that we bank has really changed again over lockdown because we have been forced to do everything from our home. So I thought, Andy, that we'd start just by, can you take us through where we are in terms of the banking landscape at the moment? Because a lot has changed over the last decade. It really has. I mean, it was 2013 that the the current account switching guaranteed this new way to try and you know stimulate competition and make it easier for customers to to move their banking elsewhere. Where it came along, so yeah, we are very very you know quickly coming up on, on a decade of this. And and one of the big things that you know a lot of the banks tried to do when uh, this sort of switching service came into play was well, how do we encourage people to? to jump from ship how do we get people to move because look we've all been there a lot of the time that account that we had was the one that we got when we you know left school went to university got our first job whatever it was sometimes it might have been just an upgrade on the one we had as kids you know maybe we had those little nat west piggy banks you know, that we, and, uh, <laughs> i did i still yeah. have that nat west account as well although i do have another one now but i think a lot of people they had that and they kept it and they kept it and they kept it and it was possibly that the longest you know, relationship they'd had with anything, let alone a financial product, probably longer than they'd been with their partners, in their job, anything. They were stuck with that bank. So it was you know, a tough ask to get people to move. So these kind of, a lot of the banks started offering cash incentives. You know, change your bank, um, move everything over. And that includes closing your old account at the other bank and we'll give you some money. And that has carried on being that the main, main driver today, I think, with with bank switching um yeah we had some figures that came out just what last week i think it was week before which are the most recent kind of bank switching data and they're always a little bit behind they're kind of showing us the figures for the last quarter of 2020 but the banks which are getting the big movements the big numbers coming to them are the ones offering that cash bonus still so i think yeah where there is that competition now between the banks a lot of the time it does seem to be who's giving the best gift if people are, are actually making that choice to move. But some of those perks are coming to an end. In fact, there are a number of them that are ending this week. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, the Halifax one ended already. The HSBC one is ending on the 9th, I think it is. And again, when these do go, it could be that the others go at once. It's, it's, it's very difficult to kind of get a sort of a real, uh, you know, sense of the pulse of where we are on these things because a lot of the time I think that one bank offers it another one offers it another one offers it and they kind of try and sort of be in that mix and um, it could also be you've also seen sometimes it, this this tranche of offers that we've had right now from the banks just four banks offering the switching bonuses so far in 2021 there are some big players who haven't done it so we might see others jump in it's really hard to gauge you know just uh, what the kind of method is in the in, in there there isn't seem to be necessarily a, a real pattern so who offers and who doesn't but absolutely um we have seen a couple disappear and that could mean that the others follow suit and we have a spell without any switching bonus which last year obviously the pandemic has been such an unusual year in, in every single way but last year was with the first time we've seen a, a long 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 period with no offers at all so, and it'd be interesting to see whether that carries on or whether we see the banks doing their own thing at their own pace. 
Because it, it is complicated to switch, if particularly if you've been with a bank for a number of years, you've got all of those direct debits, standing orders, maybe you've got an overdraft facility or a loan or a mortgage with that bank, and perhaps you've got used to having everything in the one place. So what do particularly the challenger banks offer customers that maybe the traditional banks don't, that customers might not be aware of? So this is, I think, Theo, that the, the the real battleground now for customers, if it's not giving someone some cash to get them to jump over, is to offer something which is really innovative and really enhances your banking experience. And it is those challenger banks like Monzo and Starling who have been leading the field here. And if you haven't already used one of these banking apps, uh, they are app only. There are no branches. There are no phone call centers. You know, if you haven't used one. Uh, the first time you get into it, I think you'd be quite pleasantly surprised to see just all the extra things you can do. You know, the, because there is no other way of doing your banking. You can do everything in the app, and yeah, you know, the last year in particular has really pushed things along, hasn't it? Uh, in terms of just how we move digitally everywhere, but particularly with our banking. I don't know about you, but I do. I want to do everything on my app. I don't even want to log in to my browser. I want to do it on the app. And these banks make it easy. I mean, there's things like you can pay your check in if you have checks. And I know they're a dying art form, but over the last year, I think there've been more checks have been used than before in recent years. Uh, You can check your PIN a lot of the time. Uh, It's much, much easier to sort of set up new payees and transfer the, the money over. Lots of small things as well, which are really useful in terms of helping you with your budgeting or tracking your spending or even kind of, uh, you know, helping you save more money without even thinking about it. Lots of great little things which which they are leading the way on. And I think the challenge is how do the other banks compete with that? You already see some of these features appear on their apps. Quite surprised when I looked into this recently. Um, Halifax, Lloyd's, which is the same app, essentially just different sort of badging on it and branding. And the Barclays apps, they'd actually improved a huge amount over the last year. And, and this is where the banks, I think, really need to up their game. The ones who don't provide a good app-based banking experience right now, they are going to be losing customers uh, to, to these newer banks. Because we are seeing the high street banks disappearing off the high street. We're seeing branches closed down all the time. So if there isn't differentiation between them and the challenger banks by having those high street shops for you to walk in and talk to people, then the fight is going to be online. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? And it's. Just, I mean, I like to have that security of a high street branch near me. <laughs> I like to, if something was to go wrong, for whatever reason, I like the idea that I could go in and talk to a person. Uh, although more and more now that person is on the end of a phone line, you're just calling them from the branch rather than um, from home. But I like that security. Um, but as you say, the branches are going more and more and more. And I mean, personally, what I like to do and what I think I encourage people to do is is have maybe sort of like a, a blended approach to their current accounts because you, you can have more than one. You don't have to stick to just a single account. So, yeah, and there are lots of benefits for that. I mean, remember a few years ago, we had all those IT disasters with TSB and people were locked out for a decent amount of time. And we see apps going down and online banking going down on occasion, you know, for just shorter periods. But it's good to have that protection. So I think a good approach if you're looking at sort of moving your banking or expanding your banking is to have a high street bank which has a branch near you but also try one of these challenger banks and and give them both a go but 
you, you've got that kind of uh, you know dual protection there. And if you want, I'm not saying you go as far as I do. I've got about 14 different current accounts, <laughs> but this is on for you know, partly because I'm a bit of a money geek, but partly also because this is what I do for my job. You know, so I you know write and talk a lot about current accounts. Uh, I'm not saying go that far, but yeah, you know, it's there, it can be a really good way to to help uh, you get those benefits and perks we spoke about help you try some new banking experiences for those challenger banks, uh, but also give you some of that kind of protection, which you might feel you need from the from the established high street banks. It's interesting you mentioned TSB because TSB is going a, a really interesting route. They're talking about having pop-up branches. So they're launching 43 pop-up branks across the UK. Um, and they're going to be in places like community centres. We were talking last week about these plans for um, the post office to have these multi-bank branches as, as a bit of a trial. Could this be the way forward where we won't actually have high street banks, but we will have banking representatives in place like community centres and, and post office branches? I think this is a really nice idea. And, and, you know, things do have to change because, you know, when even before the pandemic, when the banks share their figures of actual branch usage, they are plummeted. They are so much lower um, and they will continue to get lower and lower. So, yeah, the cost of having these branches, which are essentially empty, you know, uh, tombs to an old way of banking, you know, isn't going to carry on. So this might be a nice way of at least providing some kind of access to for people who, who feel they need that. Um, obviously, the, the challenge will be to see when people take something up. Just because you offer something doesn't mean people will use it. I mean, and TSB, I mean, going back to those switching figures we spoke about, I mean, they are, have been losing a huge number of customers and not gaining new ones at all. I mean, we know they've been you know having issues and struggling uh, recently, but yeah, they certainly do need to... Uh, do something, I think, to try and build, rebuild up a, a customer base. Yeah, when you get things wrong, customers are, are pretty merciless these days because there is so much choice. And one of the things which customers are having to deal with more and more is the spectre of fraud. I don't know about you. Have you had one of these texts saying, we've got a parcel, you need to pay £2.99 to get it released? And we, we've heard the news about you know issues with things coming from different countries and getting stuck and maybe having to pay more. So lots of people aren't thinking twice about you know hitting the button, putting their bank details in and getting scammed. Yeah, it's it's you know it's one of those sort of flip sides, isn't it? All these fantastic innovations that we get from technology, all these extra things that we can do, but it also means there are loads of new ways for those scammers to try and get our money. And I haven't had any of those texts, those specific texts, but you know we see them, we come in, and I, I've kind of trained myself to become slightly immune to that kind of stuff, and almost instinctively, whether it's an email, or a text message, or you know, and even the phone calls, which still obviously happen is almost to have this sort of cynicism that straight away I know, look, just don't believe it uh, and try and then do go a separate way and a different way around to try and uh, verify what's been said or check what's going on. But it's harder and harder when the uh, kind of the skills of the scammers, uh, you, know, you know, we know that they can spoof um, phone numbers and uh, text messages numbers that it makes it look like it's come from a source, even appearing in, in the chain of messages. It can absolutely be so confusing and so easy, particularly when you get scared, you're a bit worried about something just to kind of click through and take the action. So the main thing you've got to do is hold back. But obviously, the banks are trying to do as much as they can as well to make us, uh, particularly when it involves transferring our money, you know, make us sort of think twice about things. Yeah, I mean, I've I had three of these things yesterday. So 
clearly scammers are prolific at the moment. And it's hardly a surprise considering during lockdown, we've done so much more shopping online. What would your key bit of advice be to people when they're buying things online, when they're using their card? Would it be to use maybe a third party site? Do you know what? Do you know what? Talking about innovations as well in the, in the banking world, there's something really interesting coming along. Which again, only a few banks are doing this right now. Revolut offers this, Moneys offers this, uh, Monzo offers it as part of one of their paid packages. But this is a disposable virtual debit card, and I think these can be a really good way to help people. Uh, if they're concerned about you know a new website they've never used before or a payment which they think oh I'm a bit worried about this, you basically have this card number and you can expire it after it's been used and set up a new one, which I think would be a fantastic way to when you as I say you're, you're kind of worried about making a transaction until you get to that point. Uh, I mean you know the classic this is something that my mum and dad have done for years and years and years is they've had a separate card which they just use for online purchases. You know, and it just means that if something was to go wrong with it, it doesn't affect the rest of their banking, doesn't affect them anywhere else. It's literally, that's just the one they use online. It's simple things that you can do like that. If you want to, you can go down the PayPal route, which obviously introduces an extra uh, person. So you are paying PayPal. So the details are only ever with PayPal for your account, uh, card number, your account details, whatever it might be. But obviously there are other caveats you have to consider with that, such as breaking the chain for Section 75 consumer protection. But that, that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> so you say you've got 14 different bank accounts. If, if people are looking around at the moment and, and wondering what's out there, um, we always get these lists, the best and the worst bank accounts. We hear about you know all these perks that you get, things like travel insurance or mobile phone insurance that you pay a fee for. What's worth it and what's not? So I think those packaged accounts, those kind of ones that you say, which can be sort of starting off about maybe 13 quid, going up to over 20 quid a month, they can potentially be really good value if you're going to use the things that are in there. And considering like one of the big parts of them is travel insurance, frankly, I still think it's going to be a while before those accounts are going to be getting us our money's worth. Uh, and you have to get everything in there. So I, I guess don't, I'm not ruling them out completely. They can be good. But personally, I think most people right now, the package accounts, you're, you're paying for something you're not using. When you go back down the next level, there is a kind of another tier of uh, current accounts out there which are giving you freebies or a monthly reward and you have to jump through a few hoops. And if you're willing to do that, you might get yourself you know, a dozen cinema tickets, which will be handy when they reopen in a few weeks' time. Or maybe you might get yourself cash back on your bills, which is like money for nothing. So I think they're worth considering as well. But, but fundamentally, when it comes down to it, the one that you've got, the bank that's best for you, is the one that suits your immediate needs. And if that is something that helps you with your budgeting and your savings, like those challenger banks, great. If that's something that the bank that has a branch around the corner from you, great. Uh, you know, But it's, it's a good way, I think, if you can kind of just you know have a try of some of those different accounts, read up about different ones that are out there because you might be missing out on some fantastic features. But if you're happy with where you are and you don't want to get the free cash, you don't have to do it. You can stay put. But the options are out there if you do want to change. Andy, thanks so much. It's been lovely to chat to you. So remind us again where we can catch your pod. Yeah, it's called Cash Chat. So just search for that in the pod your app you're listening to this now. Thanks very much. Thank you. So some really interesting ideas there of protecting yourself from fraud. And 14 bank accounts he's got, Dan. I'm staggered by that. How many have you got? Oh, quite a few. 
<laughs> but I definitely don't have 14. Um, you know, whilst we're talking numbers, how many pairs of trainers have you got? Three, just three. Uh, and I think that is more than enough for anyone. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, th- I think as of Monday, I, I also have three, which is, you know, for historically, for, for me, that's a lot as well. So I certainly wouldn't be shelling out uh, more than £100 a pair, but lots of people seem to. And, and Jenny Owen's here to take us through another mad money story. Well, first of all, I have about six pairs of trainers, so um, (laughs) I'm really bucking the trend here. Um, But whether you're team Nike, team Adidas or team whatever's the cheapest or comfiest, trainers are essential footwear. But recently, a pair sold in auction for a record $1.8 million. The Nike Air Yeezy ones were worn by Kanye West during the Grammys in 2008 and were a prototype for his billion-dollar Yeezy business. These particular shoes were acquired by a company called Rares, which describes itself as an investment marketplace that allows users to buy shares in rare pairs of athletic footwear. When I took a look at their website, at the bottom, like many traditional investment platforms, there was a risk warning saying that past performance doesn't guarantee future gains, and users should consider their investment objectives carefully before investing. Now, that type of language got me thinking even more about the trainer resale business, which is set to be worth £4.3 billion by 2025. eBay has formed a specialist team of trainer nuts to check the authenticity of rare and collectible trainers that are resold on their website. It's tough for people to buy in-demand shoes during launches, so resales has become a beast of its own. To assess whether or not they're fakes, authenticators will check serial codes, precise stitching or detailing, and even smell the trainers, as apparently each brand has a specific odour. This is the first I know. This is the first time in, in the UK that eBay are actually interacting with the products, as there's a huge market for shoes and therefore an opportunity for buyers to be scammed. The head of eBay Europe says trainers are a new asset class, which brings me to an app a friend told me about who happens to be a sneakerhead. StockX is a platform for buying and selling trainers, as well as collectibles like watches and handbags. The difference between this and a website like eBay is that StockX actually tracks the price of each model of trainer, like stocks, providing live bid and offer prices, and even giving each model a ticker code. Um, Latest deals are plotted on performance charts and historical data is available. And even the banner at the bottom has live prices for different models sliding along, like the electronic banners at the London Stock Exchange. Uh, Unfortunately, I doubt any of my shoes are worth over a mil. They really take it seriously, don't they? But I have to say that the idea of Erda Trainer can you imagine having to sniff these shoes to make sure that they are authentic? I'm assuming they're not used. You've just got to hope they're not used. Otherwise, you'll get a right pong. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure I'll be investing, Dan. Mm. <laughs> well, that's everything from us this week. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week with a mixture of everything that's going on in the markets and everything you need to know about money. Until then, thanks very much. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply 
and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.